check two, two. Hi, hi. Sit down. Ding, 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 ding. Recess is over. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Canyon West Church. Good morning. Uh, man, that worship. Did you feel like you were at church today? <laughs> that was awesome. So, and we had our guest instrumentalist, Max, and that was awesome. So, thank you. So, um, well, I missed you all last week. So, to all your all you mothers, belated Happy Mother's Day, because I didn't get to tell you last week. So, um, I'm sure everybody else told you, but. And it says May 8th on the bulletin, so we'll just do Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day again. (laughs) But um, just so not throw you off, it's really not the 8th, it's really the 15th. So, you know, just so you know. (laughs) Um, Tuesday night Bible study at 6.30. We are having our combined Bible study where we're watching um, episodes of The Chosen and then discussing them and it's been really great and fun and informative and we've had a good time. So if you guys want to join us, we're um, started, we'll be on episode five of season one. So and Wednesday night Bible study here at the church at 630 with Ken and Wendy, uh, food bank was yesterday and the day before, and we had the privilege of serving over 250 families. So, so thank you to everyone that volunteered and worked on that. And, um, and it will come again next month, so <laughs> be ready. Uh, fifth Sunday in the park. This is exciting. We are going to have Fifth Sunday, May 29th, in the park in front of the Civic Center in Fruta. And um, there will be food trucks there, and we are going to have worship and preaching and worship, and it's going to be great. So I would encourage you to come and invite your friends, invite people maybe that are, you know, uh, I've heard this before, I don't want to walk in the church, it would fall down, or lightning would strike, or blah, 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 you know, whatever somebody uh, says when they don't really want to come to church. And you can say, well, guess what? (laughs) We're not going to be in church, it's just in the park. So, and there'll be lots of other people there, and it'll be fun. And there's food, you know, you can always use food to lure people, so... (laughs) So it's all, it's all good. Um, so invite, invite people. It's going to be at 10.30, our normal time. And bring your lawn chairs. And, uh, yeah, that would be important. Otherwise, well, you could be sitting on the grass, I guess, but it might be hard to see what's going on. So bring your chairs. And we will see you there for sure. Um, in your bulletins, we have this little handy-dandy tear-off tab. If you're a visitor with us and you want to give us some more information about yourself, please fill that out. If you have a prayer request, please fill that little tab out. Or anything else that you want to communicate to us in any way, fill the little handy-dandy tab out. So it's multi-purpose. It's very wonderful. And um, 
it, then you put it in the little black box at the back of the auditorium. And uh, that is where we put our offerings. We don't pass the plate here at Canyon West Church. And so if you feel so led, you can put your offering in the black box at the back of the auditorium. And no matter what, we are happy to see you here today. And we're going to hear um, an anointed word from Pastor Phil, and I'm going to pray, and kids can be dismissed to Kids Church. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to be here together, to worship you, to hear your word, to be filled up, and to show one another your love. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here without fear of any sort of repercussions from our government or anything like that, that we can be here openly, worship you openly, love one another, and just be your family. So Lord, I pray that you will bless the rest of this morning. Thank you for your spirit's presence. Put your hand on Pastor Phil and just talk through him We, as you do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rhonda. Good morning, everybody. So I do have one more announcement this morning. I don't know if you might notice there's a big rider truck outside. So I didn't know if we should lock the doors or if we should somehow, like, you know, Somehow, but we got to get that truck unloaded. Um, the truck has to go back tomorrow. The rental does. It's got 4,000 pounds, 4,000 pounds of food donated to us from the Postal Service food drive yesterday, which is just incredible. It's been a few years since we've been able to receive food from them, but that's, it's all just free food that we're going to be able to give out. So um, like I said, if we can get as much help as possible after church um, to get that brought in. Um, and then uh, Miss Barb has surgery this week. So, yeah, so, yes, yes, so, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, so Michelle has surgery as well this week, but, yeah, so, everyone, we need, we have prayers, but, um, like I say, if we could get some help unloading that after church, that would be fantastic, we can get that in, and then, um, then the magic happens, it's incredible, I leave for a week, and then I come back, and it's all sorted and put away, I have little elves, I don't, or there's some really hard working dedicated ladies that come in during the week there's a lot of hard-working volunteers that come in during the week and take care of all of those things and thank you very much we um let's pray real quick like we're going to be in john chapter 15 um it's the vine and the branches i think i titled this um uh, being fruitful believers but let's uh, us pray heavenly father lord we uh, we lift this time up to you we um we lift up our lives up to you that we're seeking your face this morning, Father. We are seeking your word. We are seeking your wisdom. We are seeking you. And whatever that looks like, whatever truth you have for us, whatever wisdom you have for us, Lord, we know we didn't do it right last week. We did some things right. We know we did some things wrong. And that's really why we've got your word open in front of us. We've firmly believe that you have spoken to us, that you have given us this word, you've given us your wisdom that we could draw closer and closer to you, that we could be renewed, that we could be refreshed, that we could be washed and made clean, that 
that you are just as committed to us as we are to you, if not more. So, Father, just open your heart and open your mind to us. So please do that as we dive into your word. Amen. So we are in John chapter 15, and we are in verses 1 through 17. And it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have made known to you. I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Now, if the only thing that we read out of this verse was that last part, this is my command, love each other, we'd be in pretty good darn shape, wouldn't we, for the week? That'd be all right. We're going to start off with our, with our setting. So we've got still these four chapters from the in the Gospel of John. It's this time from the time that Judas leaves to, to go on his errand of betrayal to the time that they get to the Garden at Gethsemane. And if we flip back a page to, uh, to the end of chapter 14, the very last line of the chat line, chapter 14 is, Jesus says, come, let us go. And then John doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us anything further physical direction-wise. Did they get up? Is this on the road to the garden? Or is this something last that he said in that upper room before they headed out? We don't know. John doesn't give us some direction. But if you wish, you could picture this as they, the 11, remember Judas is gone, are walking along those dark dirt roads as they're heading out to the garden to pray. And this is what Jesus has to say. And he is preparing them for his departure. Jesus is pouring into them over and over and over again, making sure that they are ready for him to live, to leave. And we have seen and we continue to see these promises and we continue to see his commitment to their relationship. And in many ways, these promises are part of the new covenant. They're part of the covenant for the new church. But really, when we look back to the Old Testament, we can see that 
this type of how God wants this relationship to be is not really new. God doesn't change. God intended this model of relationship in the beginning. If you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, God dwelled with them in the garden. There was this beautiful place there. Every need was met, and they could live there with God in the garden. After the fall, if you were um, flipping over to, uh, to Exodus, you could see that God intended for Israel to be a nation of priests. The original design was not for there only to be one line or one tribe to be priests. It was for everyone to be priests. There's this fascinating place where God calls on the people to wash themselves and then to come up onto the mountain and, and to meet with God. They have to fast and they have to clean and, and they're like, all right, so you can't go on the mountain until the horn blows. But once the horn blows, go up on the mountain. The gates of heaven are going to open up. You know, you're going to be able to go up and meet with God. And so the people go and they wash and they make themselves clean and all this stuff goes through and then... There's kind of a break in the middle of the chapter where we get the Ten Commandments, but it, the point is the horn blows and nobody goes up. The, the horn blows and it continues to blow and no one goes up. And finally they say, we're too scared. We're too scared to go up on the mountain. You go. So they tell Moses and Aaron to go. And then the horn stops blowing and then they can't go. They can't go up. But the original plan, the original portion that God wanted was for them to be in communion with him. Those people were afraid and they tell Aaron and Moses that they're too scared to go up. And they tell Moses and Aaron to go up for them. And finally that door closes, the trumpet ceases and God says, now you can't come up. You have lost the opportunity. You have failed that test of faith. So imagine it different though. Imagine if they had gone up. Imagine if all of the people of Israel had gone up and that every single person there was then called to proclaim the word of God. That is the model for the new church. When we stand here today, we are called to that exact same model that the people of Israel were called to. That every single one of us would be a functioning member of the body of God proclaiming the word. Fruitful branches. That's exactly what Jesus says. He says, he wants, I want every one of you to be grafted onto me. I am the true vine. I want you grafted onto me, and I want you to be fruitful. And he says, in fact, that fruit, the fruitfulness of your life, is what is the measure of the true believer. So we call it a new covenant, and it is a new covenant. But God does not change. God wanted a kingdom, a nation, a people tied to him. A kingdom, a people of priests. Everyone from the janitor to the CEO to be a holy, righteous proclaimer of the truth of the gospel in word and in deed. So these promises, these promises that Jesus pours out to us are promises of the new covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus. Last week... We looked at the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus promised in there that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit will come and live with us, will make a home with us. The Holy Spirit is called alongside us to help us, to comfort us, to advocate for us, and to intercede for us. Jesus is our King and Priest. We spoke briefly about the Trinity last week, and this week... 
we're going to focus on the statements of Jesus, his statements of deity, his statements of I am, because this is our last one. This is the last I am statement that Jesus gives in John's gospel. So we have these I am statements. If we were to flip back over to Moses at the burning bush, that's where we get this from. And Moses says, who are you? Who am I talking to? And God answers, I am. That is a statement of self-sufficiency. God is the only uncreated one. He is the only one. He is whole and complete and self-sufficient. We are created and sustained by God. That is a statement of pre-existence. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That's in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. So clearly there in John 8, 58, Jesus is claiming equality with God. He is claiming deity. He is part of the Trinity and claiming that. And even if you didn't believe the statement that Jesus made, clearly that's the message that the, the audience received. The people there clearly received that as a message of equality with God saying that he was a son of God, saying that he was equal with God. That's why every single time he says it, they pick up stones to try and stone him. When you claim that, it's considered blasphemy unless it's true. Unless it's true. And it just happens to be with Jesus, a true statement. So we have these I am statements in John. So we have I am the bread of life in John 6.35. We have I am the light of the world in John 8.12. I am the door in John 10:7, I am the good shepherd in John 10:11. I am the resurrection and the life in John 11:25. I am the way, the truth and the life in the last chapter John 14:6. And then this one, I am the true vine. John 15 verses 1 and verse 5. I am the true vine. So if we're looking for life, if we're looking for fruitfulness, if we're looking for truth, where do we go? We go right here. Jesus says, he says, I am the true vine. And he says we have access to that. He says we have access to being a branch off of the true vine. That's a heck of an opportunity, isn't it? And this passage also answers a very important question for us. I don't know about you guys, but certainly we have fears and doubts, don't we? Don't we have times of trial, times of difficulty. Those are times when we look at ourselves, don't we? We take a good, hard look in the mirror. Most of us, most of us don't like what we see. Most of us, when we look in the mirror, we see our history, our past. We see each of the lines, the wrinkles, the scars. We know the lies, the failures, the anger, the pain. We know what is inside the person in the mirror, don't we? So we want assurance of salvation, assurance of relationship with God. So in here, we get this opportunity to give ourselves a checkup, to audit our lives, audit our faith, audit our hearts, and audit our minds. And the fear is real. It's not an unfounded or unreasonable fear. There are false disciples. Judas was a false disciple. Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 18 to, oh, sorry, verses uh, 21 to 23, 
says something absolutely terrifying. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and did your name drive out demons and your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to know that we can spend our entire lives walking in a charade of faith and not have saving faith. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing to give ourselves an audit, to give ourselves a checkup, to check our hearts, check our minds, check our faith, check our belief. Look at the fruitfulness of our lives. That's what Jesus says. He says, one of the best ways you can tell how you're doing in the kingdom is by judging it by the fruit. So Judas has gone on his errand of betrayal. One of the twelve is not among them. He walked away. It's in John chapter 13, verse 18 through 27. It says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? These guys had walked in the dust of his robe for three years. And they have fears and doubts. It's kind of comforting, isn't it? Isn't it comforting to know that those guys, the guys that have the thrones in heaven, were sitting there looking at each other going, is it me? Is it me? Is he talking about me? Those guys, that's comforting. They needed to have reassurance. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. So Peter motioned to his disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Good job, Peter. John, John. You ask him. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Each of those disciples wonders, is it me? Like us, they look at the sinful man in the mirror. They know what is in their hearts and their minds, and they wonder if they are the betrayer. Even after Judas left, only Peter and John knew. Everyone else figured Judas had gone to get some last-minute supplies or was giving to the poor. So here they are, walking to the garden. And in a few short hours, Jesus will be arrested and hauled away to a sham of a trial. And Jesus, knowing what is in their hearts and in their minds, knowing what is in our hearts and our minds, the fears and doubts that we carry, Jesus speaks in a very simple picture so we can understand our relationship to Christ. So as we look for this, as we walk through this verse, we are looking for two things, two things, perseverance and fruitfulness. That's what he says. We're looking for perseverance, endurance, staying power. And we're looking for fruitfulness. Those two things should be obvious about the believer. 
They endure in their faith. They remain in their faith. Unlike Judas, they are not walking away. And fruitfulness. And this picture is used a lot in the New Testament. The Bible is filled with these agrarian farming analogies, farms and ranches and vineyards, plowing and sowing and planting and reaping and harvesting. So as we walk through this passage, we look at ourselves, we have to ask this question, are you still dedicated to your relationship with Christ? And what fruit is your life bearing out? So verse 15 starts off with, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. So remember, he's speaking to this group of Galilean Jews who spent their entire lives keeping Sabbath. This society is very familiar with what a gardener or a vine steward is. And they're walking to the Mount of Olives, where the olive trees and the olive press were. This analogy, they would have immediately known it. As if we're going to jump right over to Isaiah chapter 5. But everyone in there would have known he was talking about God. And he says, God is the gardener going to a vineyard, they would know this. But it's not a pretty picture. If we go to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, it says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah and the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. The imagery is plain and simple and obvious, isn't it? Most of us, I don't know about you guys, but we've been spending time outside, haven't we? Weeding and mowing and raking, getting our yards ready and cleaned up from the wintertime. Thankfully, the wind has stopped. It's been pretty brutal. But the water is on, so we're trying to wake up our flea, trees and our flowers and our yards from their slumber. We see what has survived, right? All the weeds are already out like crazy. If, if weeding, if growing weeds was a thing, I'd be a pro right? I, I kind of want to just put them all in like in a, in a bed and put some rocks around it. That, see? But we're trimming the trees and the roses and we're trying to get ready for the growing season. You know, those simple tasks that result in those aching arms and sore backs and the cracking knees and the first sun and windburn of the season, they have that connection with the garden in Genesis, don't they? the toil of our bodies, the sweat of our brow, planting the hope of a harvest in the fall. They say, I'm a black thumb gardener. I have failed to grow a lot of plants, and I will fail again this year. doesn't stop me from trying, though, because it's a labor of hope. It is a commitment to work down the road, watering and weeding and fertilizing and, and pruning, all to enjoy what? To enjoy a harvest in the fall. And Jesus says, God is the gardener. So we know the role of the gardener. 
And we have also read what God said about his vineyard. He said, man, I, I planted this vineyard. I did everything for it. I built a wall around it. I set a watchtower. I watered it. I got the best vines that I could. I, I pruned it. I took care of it. And it produced only bad fruit. So now I'm tearing it back down to the root. I've torn the hedge down. I've broke down its walls. I've cleared the garden completely out. And I'm starting over again. That's what Isaiah says. And he says, I have a new root, don't I? I have a new true vine. Jesus is the vine that I intended all along. But here he is. I have planted this new true vine for the new garden that I am starting. If we flipped over to Luke chapter 13, verse 6 through 9, it's the exact same kind of picture. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree. I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Around here we'd be wondering why it was using up water. Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig it around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The theme is common, isn't it? It's both a promise and a warning. The promise is in the planting, in the care, in the feeding, in the hope. God calls us his own. He says, you're mine, you're my vines, in my vineyard, you're my trees planted. I made you to be fruit bearers in my garden. That's a beautiful statement from the creator, but the warning is also stark. The expectation is that what he plants should grow and bear fruit. That's what he expects from us, is that we should grow and bear fruit. We should be attached to the roots. We should be attached to the vine, not going off on our own, not going wild. That We should be right there, and that we should be producing fruit. And if not, we should expect to be cut off and burned in the fire. Not his vine, not fruit-bearing, there's not much ambiguity there, is there? And we would do the exact same thing, don't we? When we go through our yards as we're raking up, as we're pulling, as we're plucking, we scrape it all, put it in the trash bags, or we haul it to the fire pit. We do the exact same thing. How can we expect God to do any different? He has planted a garden with a purpose. And that purpose is to bear fruit. And Jesus says he must be our root, that we must be tied to him and we must be fruitful. If we are not tied to him, we are uprooted and burned in the fire. If we are not fruitful, we are cut off and burned in the fire. And the growing, the being fruitful sounds good, doesn't it? The cutting and the burning, not so much. It's a pretty simple picture. But it does ask the question, doesn't it? How do we get grafted into that root that is Jesus? And how do we produce fruit? What kind of fruit is God looking for? We're not going to get there quite yet because we have to look at verse 2b, though. 2b, because it says, Fruitful vines should expect to be pruned. They should expect to be pruned. So why does God prune and trim and cut fruitful vines? That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? As a believer, say, ah, you can expect to be trimmed from time to time. 
The first thing that we want to know about that is that it's not punishment. Most of us, when we get into times of trial, when we get into times of sickness, when we get into times of, of negativity during that time of pruning, the first thing we wonder is, man, I messed up. This must be punishment. This must be the consequence for something that I've done. This must be something that I'm going through because of. And I, sometimes, yeah, sometimes we do have to be corrected. And we'll read about that in just a moment. But a lot of the times it's pruning. God says, no, I've got I've to trim this off a little bit. I've got to trim that back. I've got to pull this in. That's not going to produce fruit for you in your life. That's going to lead you to the wrong way. I've got to bring you up higher. I've got to tie you to a new place because the fruit that you're going to bear is so much. If I don't tie you up higher, you're going to fall and crack and break. So I've got to do this. I've got to keep you from producing fruit this year so that you grow stronger in your trunk so that then you can go higher. You've got to have rest. You produced so much fruit last year. You've got to rest this year so that you can produce more next time. That pruning and that training is not always pleasant, but it is ultimately for that purpose of producing the harvest. And when we think about that punishment, Jesus paid the price for our sins. He paid it. It's not for punishment. The pruning is training, building you up for righteousness and perseverance and fruitfulness. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 13 says exactly this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate and not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. We want to share of holiness? Let the discipline happen. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So we're going to go through trials. We're going to go through discipline. We're going to go through these things. And make no mistake, some trials are caused by our sin. Some by God wanting to bring you to a new place. Some are the result of living in a fallen, sinful world. And it's not pleasant to be pruned by God. It's painful. But those tests, those trials, that pruning is intended for our good. Hebrews 12, 11, just to recap, it says exactly that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Listen to Michael Jr. You guys listen to Michael Jr. at all, the comedian guy? He um, has recently switched over where he's doing um, some marriage um, stuff, using his humor to try and, and uh, uh, work with, with married folks. But he says, when we come to these obstacles, we come to these checkpoints, when we come to these places in our lives where we're facing these difficulties, those are opportunities. 
God has brought you to a place to do a couple of different things. Maybe you have a lesson to learn. Maybe you have something inside yourself you need to be aware of and to get over. Maybe it's just there's an opportunity for you to serve. But either way, when you come to those checkpoints, you can do one of two things. You can step up and dive into it, or you can step back and run away. But we shouldn't be surprised if we run away to come right back to that same obstacle, should we? Because God says, no, man, you, you can't get there till you get over this. I brought you here for a reason, to get over this obstacle. And you got to get over it or get through it or get around it or do something. But you can't get there until you get over this. Um, I see Michael Jr. was talking about it. And it, I think this is true that our spouses sometimes bring things up in us. Things that bring us to challenging points. We have those heat moments, those friction moments over everyday things. I was listening to uh, his podcast the other day, and there was, you know, a couple that was having some problems. The wife was getting really upset about the husband's driving. I think she and Brooke could probably relate. But those issues are common in marriage, common issues between people. And the lady was exasperated because she had talked to her friends and talked to her family like, look, you know, his, his driving is fine. And so in the counseling session, they're like, this is bringing something up in you. This is something that is coming up for you, for you to look at and to, to think about. And sure enough, she had some issues in her past that had been tied to that. And she had to address that before she could move on in her relationship. And it kept on coming up. She's like, man, it just it keeps on coming up and keeps on coming up and keeps on coming up. And the point was, yeah, until you address this, until you look at it, until you face it, until you go through it, yeah, it's going to be right there. You can, and they had done everything. They had decided not to ride together. They had decided not to, to do stuff together. They had you know, taken separate cars and done all kinds of things to avoid getting around this obstacle. But it was time they had to get through it. And not all those issues will be like hers, but it's an, it's an example. And during the pruning, when we are uncomfortable, when we are upset, with our family and our friends, we can ask a powerful question. We can ask a powerful question. What is this bringing up in me? Why am I standing at this wall? Of all the walls in the world, why am I standing at this one? Of all the obstacles, why did God bring me to this place? That's where we can start to look at and see what this pruning, what this training is bringing us to. And God will bring us to those uncomfortable places to trim off the dead things, the fruitless things in our lives. So we have to be willing to look and to see what he is asking us to get rid of, what obstacle he is trying to bring us over. James 2 verses 1 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. James, I don't think you live my life, buddy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And part of that pruning, part of that training is seeking righteousness, seeking God's glory and seeking God's will. Seeking God's righteousness, seeking God's glory, and seeking his will. If you have a, your Bibles, flip over to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. The very first part of that prayer 
says a couple of things, a couple of very powerful things about our prayer life. And if we were to flip back to our verse, Jesus gives us a promise about our prayer, doesn't he? He says, ask whatever you will in my name, and it will be given to you. That's a hefty promise. The same promise that was tossed at us back in chapter 14, wasn't it? There's a caveat to that. It is this part. It is the seeking God's glory, seeking righteousness, seeking God's will. This is how the prayer starts out. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, precious is your name. Your kingdom come. Wait a minute. Now that wasn't what I was asking for. I was asking for a new motorcycle. Can't I put that first? No. He says, your kingdom come. Whose will be done? No, no. I have a list of things, Lord. I have a list on my prayer list that I want done. I have healings and, and, and progress and I have work and I have all these things that are on my list. And he says, no. God's will be done. God's kingdom come. The very first two things in that prayer. Put your list at the end. Seek God's will. Seek his righteousness first. Then it says... Give us today our daily bread. Let today be enough. And forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. We try not to fall again today and then protect us from the evil one. But whose name should be hallowed? God's name. Whose name should be glorified? God's name. Whose kingdom come and whose will should be done? God's will. His kingdom. His garden. If we just flip down the page to Matthew chapter 6, 33, we all know this verse. It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest of the things that we worry about will be added to us. Part of our faith life is relentlessly seeking righteousness, a right standing with God and relentlessly seeking God's glory. And the alignment of our goals, the alignment of our hearts, the alignment of our desires with the Lord's is directly tied to effective prayer. I wonder if that's why Jesus put it at the beginning of that prayer. I'll have to think about that. John chapter 15, verse 7 says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Notice those bookends in 7 and 8. First part is remain in me. My words remain in you. The second part is to my Father's glory and to that fruitfulness. Listen to how Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. This is how Jesus prayed. It's exactly how we should pray. Not the glorify us part, the glorify God part. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Glorify Jesus, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In obedience, in death, in resurrection, in healing, in teaching, in feeding, in praying, Jesus sought two things, the will of the Father and the glory of the Father. 
If we want effective prayer, prayer that moves mountains, right? The first part, we worry about this in chapter 14, we need to get clean. We need to wash ourselves and be clean. We need to repent of our sins and not go back. And then seek the will of God and seek the glory of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So salvation is mentioned in this section. Salvation is mentioned right here. It says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That's verse 3, 15.3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Let's not neglect salvation. Faith, belief, salvation comes from hearing. It says, because of the word I have spoken to you. The word I have spoken to you. Jesus' spoken words had the power of salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, backs this up, says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. There's a reason we proclaim the word of God with our mouths, because faith comes from hearing. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is also the sword. See, that gardener, that farmer, that vine tender is cutting, isn't he? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Well, what's the sword of the Spirit? Oh, it's the Word of God. That's the sword. See, the gardener has a blade and he is cutting. He prunes the good branches so they bear more fruit. He cuts off the dead branches and throws them in the fire. Matthew 10, 32 through 42 says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever will lose their life for my sake will find it. And anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. The inspired word of God is a sword. A sword is a weapon of offense. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, Salvation, those are all armor, if we were to flip back to Ephesians chapter 6. Those are defense. The inspired word of God is a weapon. It cuts. It divides. John 15, 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. See, it's tempting to think the gardener comes into the garden angry, isn't it? He is not in the garden angry, and he is not in the garden to punish. He is not in the garden to destroy. 
the gardener has one goal, the harvest. He has planted a good vine. It has good roots. He wants good fruit. He will feed it. He will water it. He will protect it. He will weed and prune because he is the Lord of the harvest. And the fruit of our lives is the hallmark of the Christian. So these are the words of our hearts right here. We're in Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 13. It says, what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're not going to dive into this today, but I want you to put a bookmark there because Paul says something earth-shattering right there. Remember who he's talking to. It's in Romans. He's sending a letter to the church in Rome. In Rome, if you're a Roman male citizen, you owned your wife, owned her, owned your slaves, owned your house, owned them. Whatever you did to them was your business, up to murder. And Paul writes to them and says, no, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no male, there's no female. We are all equal under God. That's groundbreaking. And we take it for granted here in this country. So that heart and those words are the start. We repent of our sins. That means confessing and turning away from our sins. Now, this is important. It's not just fear of the consequence of sin. Everybody doesn't want to get caught. Nobody wants to get caught doing the things that we know that we shouldn't do. We don't want to have to pay the price for those things. Nobody likes that. This is not liking sin because it's an offense against God. Because we know who we're hurting when we do wrong things. Even the demons fear the consequence of their rebellion. They beg Jesus not to send them down too early. Right? When Jesus meets up with them and says, What have you to do with us? It's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Send us into the pigs. Don't send us down into the pit. Nobody wants the the consequences for their sin. No, we know that it breaks God's heart. That's why we don't like sin. Because we love our Heavenly Father and we know that we have hurt our Heavenly Father. When we rebel, that when we disobey, that when we do those things, it's hurtful to someone that we love. And we don't need to be all self-righteous. We don't need to defend God's honor. But Micah 6, 8 says what to do. It says, right? Act justly, love mercy, And walk humbly with your God. That's what we're seeking to do. Sin is man seeking God's place. Grace is God taking our place. So we begin with confession of our sins. We begin with turning away from our sins. We begin with proclaiming Jesus as Lord of our lives. And we begin with believing in our hearts. And here's the thing. You can do three of those things and no one would know you hadn't done the fourth. That is Judas. Judas walked and talked and acted just like the disciples. He went out on mission when Jesus sent them out. 
He sent out the twelve, and they came back. He went out two by two, went with them, proclaiming the word of God. But his heart wasn't there. And if there is a start that is more important of those things, it is in your heart. That confession of our sins, the turning away from our sins, the proclaiming Jesus as Lord of our lives, it begins in our hearts. We make an outward show of our faith by being baptized. Why? That's in Acts chapter 2. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's where they were cut. The word cut, it didn't heal. It didn't, you know, magically sprinkle dust on them. It cut because the word is a sword. And where were they cut? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers and sisters, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what did they do? They were cut to the heart. What did they do? They turned away from their sins and they were baptized. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Some people didn't. The sword cut, it divided. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then, it's in your bulletin, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what they were devoted to cut to the heart, repented, baptized, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and to breaking of bread. So what would you say to someone? Because we've been talking about figs and trees. We've talked about grapes and vines. What would you say about someone who said they were a Christian and then continued to live a sinful life? Someone who wasn't devoted to the Bible or to fellowship or to prayer or to breaking of bread, but said they were a Christian. Would you say that person is devoted? Would you say that person is bearing fruit? We get to the last point, which is the remain part. It says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Much fruit shows that we are his disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. See, last week we talked about the God side. We talked about how God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit promised to make a home with you this part, Jesus is asking you to make a home with them. Remain. Abide. Live with me. Live with us. Stay. Don't leave. Judas had just left. 
It says, Dear children, this is 1 John 2, Dear children, though this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Their leaving showed their heart. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 through 10 says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Remain, stay, don't leave. Remember your commitment. Don't forsake your vow. This is a relationship. We talked about the God side, God's commitment to you last week. This is your commitment side. Like marriage, you will come across obstacles, challenges. It will bring things up in you that you will need to overcome. You can lean into the pruning or you can cut bait and run. Don't expect the rewards of a fruitful life and eternal salvation if you leave every time the going gets tough. Jesus says part of a fruitful life is persevering, enduring, remaining, abiding, being as committed to the relationship as Christ is to you. Part of the fruit of our lives is the fruit of obedience. And we should expect to be a functioning body of Christ teaching and healing and feeding. Jesus says it this way. He says, my command is this. Love each other. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. We have his words. We have it. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. That's kind of a nice thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? We come to the end of our rope and we come to the obstacle and we come right down to the nitty-gritty when we get down to all of it. We have no idea what to do. We're like, man, I... I have no idea. I, I, I tell you, I pray this prayer all the time. Like, God, I'm, I'm headed out that door. I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen. I think I'm doing the right thing. But you got to stop me. Right? You got you to put a wall up. You got to stop me. You got to do something. Because I don't know. I don't know. But I'm seeking your will. I'm seeking your glory. I'm seeking the good things for you. So you got to stop me if this isn't the right way to go. And then God says, love. Just love the person love the person next to you. Love the person that you see across from you at the restaurant. Love the person that, that you see at the, at the airport. Or love the person at the gas station. Or love the person, whatever. Just, if you see somebody, love them. Whoever it is. doesn't matter. Just love them. Look at them. See their needs. Maybe it's the driver who cut you off on the way to work. Maybe you're alone. Maybe you need to love the person in the mirror the way that God loves you. But look at them. See them. See their humanity. See their hurts and their scars. See them just like you see yourself when you look in the mirror. Then fill a need. 
whether that's kind words or water or food or shelter or maybe it's just listening. Maybe it's speaking the word to them. Look to build a relationship with that person that you see and look for an opportunity to love them. It's pretty nice, isn't it? Nothing complex, nothing overly simple. Seek my glory and love the people around you. And you will have a fruitful life. It's a nice promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for opportunities to serve. Thank you for the obstacles, the challenges, the friction, the heat, the sparks. We know that you intend good things for us. We have so many things. We have surgeries and wonderful things, marriages. We have babies and lost babies. Father, we, we know that you intend good things for us. So for this week, Father, please help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep you as our sole focus, to keep you as our sole prize. Father, please help us to see these people the way that you see them. Give us your heart, give us your mind, give us your understanding that we wouldn't walk on by, that we could just touch one person the way that you would, that we would love one person the way that you would love them. Father, we are seeking for healing, we are seeking for protection, we are seeking for good things, blessing, rain for our little valley. But all of it has to glorify you, God. All of it has to be in your name. So we ask that, Father, that here that your name would be proclaimed throughout our valley. If there's one spot, if there's one voice that can cry out, Father, please add them to the number. Father, please renew us. Please help us to remain and abide. Please renew our hearts, renew our minds, renew our, our places. Screw us, our courage, to the fixed place so that we can stick through trying times. Father, we're asking for provision. Everything has gotten more expensive, Father. Everybody's paychecks are smaller, and you are the Lord of the harvest. We just ask that you provide for your people no one would go hungry, that no one would be without a home. That, And Father, please help us to see and to hear and to know where we can help. We don't want to leave our brothers and sisters behind or without coats or shoes or, or food in their pantries. Please bless our children as school is getting out. We've got finals week and we've got summertime and summer jobs and all of those things. Please fill them with joy, fill them with fun. Let them enjoy this time before the seriousness of adulthood comes. And please, Lord, keep them safe. Guard their hearts, guard their minds, and guard their bodies. We ask all of that in the name of the Good Shepherd, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Who wants to go unload a truck? <laughs>